Hello and welcome to another episode of The Coder Career with me, your host, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Max Howell. Now, you may have heard of Max already, but if you haven't, you'll be very familiar with one of his projects, Homebrew. Max is the creator of Homebrew, which is one of the largest package managers out there. It's led to him having a really interesting career, including a stint at Apple. Max is currently working on T, which is a new generation of package management. If you're interested in the world of open source, then this episode is one for you. Max delves into his vision for the future of open source and how he's going to be part of it with T. But equally, don't be intimidated if you are very inexperienced in open source. We talk about how you can get started even very early in your career. No sponsors at the moment, so just a quick plug. Check out the Patreon, link in the description. And as well, make sure you're checking out the jobs on Startup Grad Jobs, which is my job platform. We have plenty of entry-level software engineering jobs in the UK on there. But without further ado, enjoy the show. Hey, Max, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Uh, good to be here. Nice. So for people who aren't familiar with yourself, do you want to explain a little bit about who you are, what you're doing at the moment, and what you've done before? Sure. Um, going all the way back, I uh, grew up in Britain, but no longer live there. And uh, didn't know what I was going to do for a career with myself, kind of forced into academia by the way I was schooled and parented. Uh, so I was sniffing around trying to be a scientist. I did a chemistry degree. Uh, but when I got into the industry, I discovered that just like everyone had told me, uh, chemistry is extremely boring. And I found myself in this situation where like, I thought that, you know, my life would be starting, but actually I was terrified about what might be happening. So I installed uh, Linux on a computer at home and discovered programming and uh, open source. This is like 2003 or four or so. And uh, found all these really, you know, fun communities in the in the world of Linux and Linux desktop software. You know, like back then, Windows was the major player. Everyone, everyone used Windows and like Linux was this like kind of uh, rebellious uh, revolution. That's how we felt about it. And so we felt we were like changing the world. And uh, so I, I just sort of started hacking on all these different projects and uh, lived with my parents, stayed up all night hacking on stuff until they kicked me out of the house and told me to go get a job. So <laughs> I managed to get myself a job in London at a startup there called Last FM because they've been using some of the open source I've been working on. So they gave me a job even though I didn't have a degree in computer science or engineering or any kind of qualifications apart from the work that I had done. And uh, it was while I was there, I created Homebrew, which uh, is pretty well known as, as it stands nowadays, like millions, tens of millions of users. And you know, it was like at the time Mac was up and coming. And so I sort of rode that wave and created this, what has become an indispensable tool. And, uh, you know, otherwise in my career, I've done a lot of open source in general and worked at a lot of different startups, um, always wanting to work on open source most of all, because it's how I got into it. You know, that that's, that's the side of things that really drives my passion. And so as a result, I recently started uh, a new company, raised a bunch of money, and the goal is to try and make it so that open source isn't this, like, charity, essentially, like that, because that's, that's the nature of it. So we're, we're trying to finally, once and for all, solve 
the uh, the open source maintainer problem. Like everybody knows it, and uh, we'll uh, be uh, full on that for uh, you know the, the near future anyway. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit. Yeah, there's definitely like a major market imperfection there in terms of how people are making contributions, some of which are then being used in unicorn companies and then essentially not being credited for it. So, um, yeah, definitely a lot to uh, lot to talk about uh, talk about there. So in terms of the, um, the open source originally, like what was it that inspired you about, was it the philosophy or was it just the fact that you can kind of just create something using code? But my uh, my journey with computers was like I, I don't fully understand it. Um, like my dad did start me off with programming when I was very young, and I, I owe him a lot for that. Uh, thrust BBC Basic in front of me. I'm not sure if you've ever used a BBC Micro, but I've heard of it. But I'm a yeah. I look a, I look a lot older than I actually am. I've just turned 28, <laughs> so <laughs> I wasn't yeah, really yeah. around for it. <laughs> I can tell by your beard not having any salt and pepper in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like when I was a kid, they, they were everywhere. Like every school had like racks and racks of them. And so it was, you know, something that I feel is missing nowadays with computers as well is like they, they don't boot into something that you can just program with, right? Like I think my generation was super lucky in that you couldn't do much with most of the computers apart from try out a bit of programming. So I had loads of friends and we were all like, trying to make games the whole time but you know I never really thought I would do it for a career and so uh I uh when I discovered open source again it was really the sort of revolutionary aspect of it because I liked computers but I didn't like Microsoft (laughs) Uh, and like they really really were killing everything at that point like Microsoft nowadays is so different to how they were 20 years ago like they would regularly uh, go out and do interviews, like the execs saying how Linux was a cancer and Linux was gonna destroy the world and uh, it would destroy business and open source was uh, I don't think we called it open source then, like maybe um, was uh, dangerous and like terrorists were gonna use it to kill everyone, stuff like that. So like they really irked me with this. And like, obviously the internet was stifled because of Internet Explorer. That was like the big one, right? Internet Explorer version six was like 10 years old and they hadn't added any features to it. And so we had like, the internet was stagnant because Microsoft got 95% of the browser market share and then um, just sat on it (laughs) because they didn't want the internet to win, right? They wanted people to keep having to down, like buy CDs with like Microsoft Word on and uh, the internet was a threat, as they saw it, and like, well, rightly so. They, they, of course, over the last decade, decade or so, like, really reconfigured how they saw all this stuff. But at the time, you know, they were right. And being a business, they were trying to stop it. So yeah, you know, like, um, as a young twenty-year-old, this shit really bothered me. I felt like something that was so important was being. Uh, cut so like I did get into open source kind of for that yeah revolutionary aspect rather than for the thrill of the code but I discovered the thrill of the code and I discovered the the thrill of making things that other people enjoyed using and I really and still do don't think there's a better way to develop software because it's so iterative and so fast and the cycles are so fast and like 
open source is proved by its worth. You know, like typically there's no marketing budget, right? So, and uh, you know, developers in general, I think, have this attitude where if they see an ad for a developer tool, they just like back off. <laughs> like, hang on a minute. Like, I, I don't trust why I need an ad, right? If, if the product was good, I would have heard about it. And we all feel this way. So we have like a network of people we know and they talk about new tools they've discovered here and there. And it's that direct reference from someone that you trust that makes developer tools succeed. And, you know, open source is probably part of the reason for that, the way it, the way it sort of evolved and took shape. Like if you made some open source and it wasn't any good, then it just wouldn't get anywhere. You had to, you had to prove it. There's no, there was no way to tease and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, subterfuge the, uh, the, the end user that if, if it wasn't any good, they just would not use it. There was plenty of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, like those aspects, like still really drive me. I love that. Like I've released tons of open source and 90% of it never got anywhere. <laughs> and I'm happy because <laughs> yeah. this was the world telling me that what I'd come up with wasn't good enough, and that, you know that's that's fine with me. In a, in a weird way, it's almost like the purest form of the free market in terms yeah. of like you know it is decided by how good the quality the quality of the product is, and um, you know it, it's something that I think people almost get a bit intimidated um, by open source. I think for me, I, I probably actually stifled the first few years of my software career where, you know, I I almost thought it was magic, which sounds really silly thinking back, but the idea that I could actually just go in and change this code and like make suggestions, like I think it's a combination. A lot of people have that combination of imposter syndrome um, mm. plus like the great unknown. And I think, uh, you know, it would behoove people to just even just have a quick look at these at the source code if you don't understand everything in the major open source packages you use but you know it, that that's actually when i feel like i properly became a decent developer it was when i actually started properly looking at the source code of, of open source yeah. stuff and that because a lot of it's best practices because it's out in the open it has to be mm-hmm. yes <laughs> uh although you know you shouldn't look at some of my code to be honest um <laughs> i get prs and they're like making the code look less ridiculous and i'm like well i understand where you're coming from but i've become too much of an artist in that respect what was uh what was the first project you pr'd then um it's something very specific uh it was for a so i'm many front end um i added some compatibility for a table uh, CSV download button. Oh, actually, do you know what? Tell a lie. The first uh, thing I did a PR for was a spelling mistake in React Hook Forms documentation um, <laughs> when I yeah. when I'd been in my first dev job for two months. Uh, <laughs> you, it's funny. Like you know, your project is going somewhere when you get typo pull requests. <laughs> this is yeah. like a rule I have. I remember I, I worked at Apple for a year, and like it's a good story by itself, but. Um, we open sourced Swift while I was there. And uh, like the first 100, 200 pull requests were all like fixing typos. And like the team internally were joking about how it's going to be the most correctly spelled project on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, it shows that people are reading your, your readme and your documentation. Like if you don't get those typo pull requests, you pr- probably like still need to hope someone's going to 
post a link to your project on Hacker News or in the right Twitter uh, spheres or the right YouTube spheres, you know. I do remember a few years ago, Meta had to change the rules around contributing to the React like core code though, um, because people were just like making tiny documentation changes and then mm. they were just listing themselves as a React contributor yeah, and their totally. GitHub backed it up. And which to be fair, I respect the hustle because uh, <laughs> then they were going to recruit you to be like, look, you heard of this React thing? Yeah, I wrote part of that, which do you know what? Fair play. Um, didn't do it myself, but uh, yeah, I do I do know yeah. a few people pet, um, pulled that one off while, while, that, uh, while that hustle was still going. <laughs> well, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Like how, how the, everything has changed over the last 10, 15 years. And it, like, it, the status of open source really changed. Because it used to be that it was considered very low status in our industry, you know, open source. Mm. And now, like, it completely powers everything, all software, all, all of the internet. And so, yeah, like, during that transition, some, some people realized that if they could get <laughs> their name on, like, popular projects, then it would help them with the interview process. You know, like, I got that famous tweet. I'm sure you've maybe heard of it, maybe. I don't know, um, where Google didn't give me a job, right? Um, and the tweet has the F word in it because at the time, like, nobody knew who the hell I was, really. Like, they knew homebrew, but I had, like, three to 600 followers on Twitter. And uh, so I went for went for the interview. Um, I didn't really want the job, but wanted the option. <laughs> So, you know, Google interviews at the time were like seven interviews back to back, pretty hardcore. I'm not sure what they are now. And uh, like I told the recruiter, you know, I don't have a computer science degree, right? Like uh, my my resume is homebrew and the other open source that I've done. And so I assume you've looked at that and said, hey, I can see a position for Max at this company doing something. And so the first interview I got was like this hardcore computer science where I wasn't even that hardcore, frankly, like people are bright. So, oh, so some, some of the fallout, um, people rightly pointed out afterwards, some of my heroes in the software industry rightly pointed out afterwards, it was a fairly easy problem. <laughs> that was a real blow to my ego. Um, yeah, so I didn't get it. And I tweeted that and the tweet went viral and it went on all over Hacker News. I remember I was working somewhere at the time and my friend said, so where do you think your tweet is on Hacker News? <laughs> he had it open. I did not, because I was kind of like appalled at what I'd created. I didn't expect it to get any attention. Like I say, I had like 300, 600 followers. And I said, I don't know, page two. He was like, you're number one. And so I opened up <laughs> Hacker News, and there I am, like massively overvoted relative to everyone else, because it, you know, it resonated with people. The idea that these big companies were testing people with proven track records in open source on stuff that, that it didn't really matter because uh, the very idea that Google couldn't have used me somehow. Like, I said in the tweet, 90% of your engineers use homebrew. Uh, almost certainly wasn't that high, but it was probably 50%. You know. I mean, it's basically everyone's a Mac. Uh, I mean, especially these days. I used it this afternoon. Uh, it worked very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, well, exactly. Like, it really became so indispensable. 
But um, yeah, so it, it made a big ruckus. Apparently, like Google revisited their interview process after that. Like, apparently, there was town halls and stuff. And uh, I did, you know, I got an email from some other department at Google the week after saying, "Hey, look, you can you can come. We'll give you a sensible interview to you know satisfy everyone and like ourselves as well that you're not like a faker." Uh, but you know, I didn't. As I say, I didn't really ever want it. Mm. So what was that all just super like data structures, algorithms, kind of like yeah. CS grad style stuff? Um, no, like half the interviews were stuff I knew uh, I could do. Like I, I would have said at the time my speciality was software architecture mm. and uh, I got a load of architecture like type questions because the interviewers could choose what to, uh, you know, they, there was a, apparently a catalog of questions and like they could go in and pick ones they wanted to ask. So some of them have been like, hey, well, okay, he we know he doesn't have a computer science degree, so we'll test him on stuff that he says he knows. And uh, so, yeah, one of the people who interviewed me actually emailed me the day after all of it went down to say that it had been a very contentious decision and that they'd all stayed, like, for an hour and a half after all the interviews were done and, like, argued it out. And, like, half of them were like, we need to hire him. And half were like, no, he can't do blah, blah. So, yeah. Fun story. Yeah, it's it, for me. It's always been a uh, so I, I don't have a comp sci degree or even a comp sci background, uh, and mm. it's always I, it's always been a sensitive point for me as well when I'm told to do some kind of data structure or algorithm stuff, especially because I specialize in front end. Like I'm a very I, I call myself like a very commercial developer in terms of like how I how I like to function, and um, you know I it really gets my back up when I'm forced to do something incredibly theoretical um because you know i just i don't have any education that i mean i've got a business degree i think in in some weird ways it's almost more useful to have that kind of background in in software because you understand the commercial value add but then Mm. again i would always just say if you have a comp sci degree do do some kind of business education if you've got a business education do some kind of comp sci education (laughs) like it's better to you know try something out from the other side yeah well exactly like you know Anyone who works in software knows that it's mostly engineering and not very much science and very rarely science. And when it is science, you can Google it, (laughs) (laughs) which which is what I thought was ironic is that if they let me use their product to uh, look up the questions they were asking me, I almost certainly could have done it. But yeah, um, interesting about business. This is a part that I wish I had more experience. um, Well, I mean, like, educational experience anyway i feel over the years you naturally pick up business experience but uh you know more formal like if i could go back in time i would have told myself to do that as a degree yeah it's an interesting thing to to study it can, it can be quite a hit and miss because it's so broad as a subject like there's some there was some stuff that i just absolutely loved doing and then other stuff that was I knew it was never going to be relevant for me. Like um, I pretty much knew I was going to work in technology, but I always just thought on the business side um, because I basically knew I wanted to make money and tech sounded way more interesting than being a lawyer or being a banker or, or something like that. And then, um, you know, I, I figured what's the easiest way to get in um, after a business degree and it was sales, sales and recruitment. Um, and it was only when I, so I played on a computer science football team, uh, in uni. And, uh, <laughs> so my mates yeah. that did that said, why don't you just try and get into tech recruitment, um, and go in that way. And, you know, I'm glad I took their advice cause I was able to, within a couple of years, teach myself to code and then, you know, been in the industry five years as an engineer. So it's, um, you know, it's, that is something I am very grateful of. Uh, and particularly even since I've been in, in the industry, how, 
little requirement there is for like centralized qualifications um and how you know you can just back up how good you are um in interviews by coding a lot of the time increasingly so these days and especially if you have open source uh contributions and uh, you can actually show off what you've done even before an interview mm-hmm. yeah i personally I, uh, I i put a lot of value behind open source work but uh can you know i think people <laughs> don't want to show me it when they come to interview for my company what do you think yeah, that is? You know, well, you know, it's imposter syndrome, just like you're saying. Yeah. Like, you know, that's an interesting conversation in itself. Like people, ex- people think I have no imposter syndrome. That's just bullshit. <laughs> like, uh, just because I have this, uh, you know, very prestigious project under my belt, um, yeah, I wouldn't feel very confident about uh, contributing to a lot of very high-profile projects. Um, yeah. Especially because nowadays some of them are so professionally run, so yeah, we all we all get it, and uh, so I, I get why people uh, worry about contributions. And like something I see a lot nowadays is like open source contributors, like serial open source contributors. Like if you look at their GitHub profiles, they're just continuously throwing stuff at like every project they come across that has any use to them whatsoever. Uh, and uh, it's, it's kind of a shame, but I get it. Like, certainly if I was going to get into open source fresh, I would start with, you know, the discussion boards, the social aspects of it. And uh, the more you understand tooling, the, the more, you know, that's the, that's the part I kind of miss actually about early open source is that, we all hang, hung out on IRC and just talked the whole time. And I learned so much from just that. And like, that doesn't seem to happen anymore, right? Like, do, do you not think with Discord and stuff? Like, I feel like there's, I mean, you know, it's probably a uh, proper time for me to shout out the podcast Discord, by the way, codecareer.com slash Discord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. I feel like there is a good vibe in a lot of Discords. It, yeah, I, I know and I agree. I, I guess. One of the things about the IRC was you, it was all on Freenode and every open source project that existed was on this one IRC server. <laughs> so you went in there and you were just naturally dragged into these other projects. And like Discord is like got barriers around everything, mm. right? In order to even get into the project, I have to find an invite link. I can't just type it in. I can't search. Yep. So it's it's not the same and like that you know like communities are shaped by the user interface that's put on top of them but well we also did a lot of communication via email back in the early 2000s and i don't miss that <laughs> like these email lists uh yeah like that people would argue for months and uh that's where i learned that uh open source is made by the people who commit and not the people who argue. <laughs> I remember like there was a few very high profile conversations in the KDE. KDE is this desktop, you know, it was trying to replace Windows, essentially, like the, the UI for Windows for Linux. It was very copycat, which is typical of open source GUI stuff. 
Um, but there was like one that I can't remember what the argument was about, but it'd been going on for months. And then like someone just like commented one day, oh, I just committed a fit, the, the, the thing. And then everyone was like, oh, and then the argument was done. Yeah. <laughs> no one it- was willing to revert the code or like critique the code or uh, even like, you know, say, oh, we should have done it differently because code was king. Yeah. You got to bias towards action. I think in any mm-hmm. career, not even just being a software engineer, if you just bias towards action, like it's going to get done. You're probably going to get your own way a lot of the time anyway. And I think um, a quote I always come back to is uh, Peter Levels said, um, the people who are debating their technical choices all day on Twitter aren't shipping anything. And I totally agree with that, whether it's an open source context, whether it's a business context or both, like, you know, that you, you, sometimes you just got to do the work and who cares if someone thinks that you could make some marginal gains by rewriting it in, you know, X, Y, Z language um, mm-hmm. versus ABC, uh, yeah. you know, it's like all these Rust versus Go, um, you know, debates when sometimes there is something to be said for, uh, for just shipping, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, um, obviously if you're in an open source like project what i would say to the listeners particularly those inexperiences that you can't just change the language that the project is written in uh, <laughs> i mean you can try but i doubt they'll accept it no. but um yeah i mean Super what what would you say to someone who was like a junior engineer and was just like yeah i want to i want to try something in open source but i'm nervous yeah well i've always said that the best way to get into open source is to identify your own niche that you, you know the, the thing you need the itch you have everyone has slightly different workflows and there's always room for a new tool that just like sees some gap in how people are working how you are working if you need it someone else is going to need it now super more difficult to get attention nowadays like this is the truth of it back in 2004 there was way less developers and way, way less people working in open source. And nowadays open source is key to everyone who does development. So it's just saturated and that's difficult. It's a double-edged sword almost in in that way. There's so much of an ecosystem, so much you can learn, but equally hard to actually cut through the noise. Yeah, I feel it's it's definitely harder but you know like when i made homebrew initially um it no one noticed it for months i had to get out there and evangelize it myself and there was two key moments that put it on people's radars and uh first one was i responded to simon wilson you know the guy i've heard the name simon wilson he's pretty important dev influencer nowadays but at the time you know this was early twitter as well 2009 twitter was 2007 it came out and, uh, i was working in web 2 so i was on all the new platforms joined instagram before it was cool and all the, all the rest and um so he was there and he was talking about uh wanting assistance with compiling software himself on his mac and he put up a superuser.com post asking because you know superuser was the right forum i think everyone would just put it on stack overflow nowadays um so i replied like super detailed set of responses and then at the end i pitched homebrew as like being the tool that could do all this for you because initially homebrew compiled everything from source and part of the reason that um i built it is because i needed a tool that would allow me to compile things from source 
with more programmatic um, hooks, essentially. Like, over time, it just became like binaries only, pretty much. And uh, the, the tool used before everything else, like the, the lowest level. But, you know, initially it had some more features than that. And I guess it's still kind of there. I don't know. Um, so uh, that got me some attention. Um, Simon Wilson certainly noticed. And, you know, this is key, right? You've got to get these influencers to talk about your project. And that led to Josh Peak noticing Homebrew. And he was working at 37 Signals at the time. He's still like a bit of a tech influence as well. Oh, of DHH Not... fame, uh, 37 yeah, yeah. Signals, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he had like a following, uh, all the Ruby people, and Homebrew was written in Ruby. Mm. And he said that when he installed the new version of OSX, which was Snow Leopard, I think. They used to name it after cats. And um, not like mountains and whatever else. <laughs> um, California-centric stuff. I, I prefer the cat naming scheme, personally. Yeah. Uh, he said when he installed it that he would install Homebrew rather than MacPorts, and MacPorts was like the main pack mm. manager at the time. still exists, but yeah, Homebrew really kicked his ass um and then so that that got me uh like the first wave of people coming in and then it hit hacker news like a bunch of times and hacker news was pretty new at the time relatively speaking like and uh then after that yeah it was there was no going back after that it became a full-time job for me um i quit the job i had to work on homebrew until i ran out of money and i just kept doing that because it was easily the most interesting thing I could be working on. And I loved mm. it. And it was that when, so when, after you worked on it full time, was that when you went to Apple? How was that experience? Yeah, Apple was, um, I think it was 2014, immediately after my tweet. Uh, the tweet, <laughs> uh, I got like more than 200 emails from people trying to recruit me after the tweet. So uh, <laughs> it really solved my I don't know what to do next problem. And Apple were one. And it wasn't just Apple. It was like working with Chris Latner on um, Swift. So it was impossible for me to uh, turn that one down. They gave me a, 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 a nice interview. I think they were terrified of what might happen. If they gave me, it's the first example of cancel culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I felt, you know, I still kind of feel bad about it. It wasn't my intent, but I guess it all worked out. Um, and then they offered me the job the same day, and I accepted the day after. And so I went there for a year, and uh, well, it really wasn't for me. Um, that's for sure. So I worked on the Swift package manager. Uh, while I was there, and so all the good things and the bad things about how the Swift Package Manager works are my fault because I designed it. <laughs> so apologies to everyone for the fact that it's very slow. It's because uh, I decided that it needed to be decentralized, and I still stand by that, uh, but it means that every package is this separate Git repository, and it takes a long time. Uh, it could be sped up with a centralized cache, and I don't know if they've done that or not because I don't really work with Swift anymore. Um, but my manager and me really didn't get on. He was uh, a new manager and he was out to prove himself and he didn't really like how I worked. And that's because I didn't work how 
companies like Apple work. You know, I'm an open source iterative developer who's used to like sticking stuff out there in like a shoddy shape and people giving me feedback and then I like mangle it into something that's either great or disappears. Uh, well, how does it, it work at Apple? Um, it's surprisingly, everything must be designed up front. <laughs> I remember having a meeting with my manager and someone who was uh, on the Swift team who really like felt that I needed to succeed and he wanted Max House to succeed at Apple and he believed in what my vision was for how the stuff I was working on should be. And I, I was, the meeting was like, because I pushed something to master without like getting it reviewed by the team first. <laughs> and I was like, look, I, I needed to see how this feature I was writing worked or I couldn't figure out if it was good or not. You know, mm. I couldn't, there was no way I could design it up front. I needed to play with it. And the only yeah. way I could play with it in the context of all the stuff that we were building there was to push it. <laughs> this was before it was released. So the public didn't know Swift was being open source. They didn't know about Swift Package Manager. And I just couldn't persuade my manager that to, to budge on how we were approaching it. It needed to be designed up front, needed to be okay by the committee. And I hated those meetings. We'd sit in there and argue over design. It reminded me, yeah, of the mailing lists from KDE back in the day where everyone was just arguing over minutiae. There was a lot of people who I was involved involved with there who also hadn't proved themselves at Apple yet. And it seemed to me Apple was very much a place where no one respects you until you've been there 10 years. And so the people who'd been there 10 years were like just sitting back and like letting everyone argue and then they'd say good points and everyone would listen. Everyone would listen to what those people said. And everyone else was like just critiquing like the minors, the minorest crap because they wanted to look smart, which was very surprising. I didn't expect Apple to be full of such insecurity, right? Like we're all there, right? Because Apple picks people for mm. excellence, but well, it wasn't really like that. It was more like seniority, <laughs> which, yeah. So I lasted almost a year. My manager went on a 10 week, um, what do you call it? Like sabbatical kind of thing. Sabbatical, yeah, exactly. Yeah. After, after you've been there a certain amount of time, they gave you like a 10 weeks paid sabbatical. And uh, there was all these perks. It's, it's a good company if you want to stay there the whole of your life. <laughs> and uh, I just stopped working. I, I couldn't find motivation without my manager like breathing down my neck I just hated it there so much and so he came back and he was like you didn't do anything for 10 weeks and I'm like yeah he's <laughs> like okay um, what's going to happen then are we going to fire you or are you going to quit <laughs> and with hindsight I should have got fired because in California you get freaking nice perks yeah <laughs> They have to give you like huge amount of severance. And I, I just, uh, I didn't even care about that really. Fair so enough. I was just like, okay, I'll quit. And um, yeah, so me and the wife at the time went on a road trip across America from West Coast to East Coast. It was fun. And, uh, and that was that. Well, I feel bad about it. Like they gave me a chance, but well, I also feel like they put me on the wrong team. 
gave me the wrong manager and there was no thing in place to correct that. But I definitely was, I was full of myself, right? It's peak homebrew. Just had this viral tweet, 250 people trying to recruit me. Uh, I wasn't on my best behavior either. <laughs> Fair enough. And I mean, I guess you're, you're kind of on the other side of the table now in the sense of you have your company. Um, T, do you want to explain a little bit about what, what you're doing and what you're building? Yeah, so as I say, my career has been a lot of startups, a lot of finding time to work on open source full time. And a lot of time when I was working on open source, like it was like I had two full time jobs, right? Well, a lot of that was homebrew. And then I had this other like relatively big project called Promise Kit, which is this uh, promises library for iPhone, which at this peak had like 100,000 apps using it including like Netflix and Burger King, all these high profile apps. So it's less now because uh, Apple put, um, you know, like asynchronous primitives into the language itself. So it's been great. It's definitely in maintenance mode. It's gradually disappearing. At the time, it was, it was quite big. And so when I was working on that, um, I also was spending, I remember just spending evenings after working all day, like just working on it. I'm amazed that my wife at the time didn't divorce me just for that, honestly. And I'd sit in front of the TV with some like basic background entertainment on that I could glance up to look at every now and again. And it's worked all the time. So like uh, for me, it's always been like open source is like not just something I'm doing for fun. It's what I want to do. And I tried a couple of times to figure out how to like fund myself. Right? I uh, made a Patreon one year. And I managed to get up to like 800 bucks a month, I think. And my rent was 2000 and my health insurance was like 800 or something. Oh yeah. Of course, <laughs> you're, sure. you're in the US, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this. And I spent 30, 40% of my time, um, marketing myself. And as I said, you know, previously, like one of the things I love about open source is it, you, there is no marketing budget. You just, uh, you just make good stuff and. Uh, so uh, I stopped after a few months and it just wasn't going up enough and I knew I wasn't going to like be able to, to make it and I reached out to Sindro uh, Soros I apologize to him if I pronounce his name wrong I have no idea um, who is very famous for making um, huge amounts of open source and he has a good Patreon and other good sponsorship going on I was like well what can I do and uh, he gave me some advice, but I just couldn't, I didn't want to put that much time into it. So yeah, it didn't work out. And I tried a mailing list at one point and uh, I just couldn't get enough traction on it. So yeah, I've been looking for solutions. I don't really believe in bounties and, and uh, frankly, sponsorship, like it makes open source into a charity. Open source is not a charity. Open source is this fundamental and vital infrastructure that is powering f- everything nowadays, mm. right? Like, I was disappointed that none of my source code made it to the Mars Explorer. I really wanted that uh, achievement on GitHub. Uh, <laughs> and like, you know, the, the idea that you could be making something that is that important and uh, is, is compelling and the world doesn't appreciate it. And, you know, let's face it, like there is a lot of companies now that have made a lot of money on the, on the backs of this open source. And, 
think part of the reason we allowed it to get to this this stage, like for me, this really is the peak right now, mm. where uh, there's open source that has like almost no funding, and yet it's powering like a trillion dollar industry, and like there's no good solutions. But the, we're trying to build one, right? That's that's the point. Is that while I was in between jobs about. 20 months ago or so and wanting to work on some open source but not not knowing what i would be doing in order to make that happen i decided i'd sit down and try and really figure out a solution so i went deep on uh, stuff that i didn't know anything about looking for possibilities and so yeah i came across crypto something that i hadn't really uh looked into before more than just cursory interest right like um i knew what bitcoin was and i had heard of ethereum i had some guy i knew that was always trying to get me into ethereum he's like hey max you can make 500 dollars an hour writing ethereum smart contracts and um i I never really picked anything because of the the money so i didn't do it didn't look into it probably should have probably would be like a multi hundred million uh, millionaire from just like the Ethereum I would have picked up from working there in, the, in that space. So I was looking at smart contracts and stuff. And like one day I, I was playing around with OpenSea and I sold an NFT and I saw the, the 10% um, of the sale that went to the original artist and that it was mandated by a smart contract. There was no way around it. And I saw in that light bulb moment, the, the potential of that, of like this automated system and how it could apply to the open source graph and how if you know the graph, like a package manager does, then you can make sure those smart contracts are correctly provisioned so that if you can figure out how to put some token into that system, you can distribute it to all the pieces that matter, not just like the tops, not just the favorites, but all the way down that tree. Uh, so the people who maintain these projects that you know are, are fun, foundational and yet like don't um, get any compensation for that can be rewarded. Like you hear about them all the time, like the projects where like they suddenly get attention because there's an exploit or because the maintainer quits because they're fed up. They're fed up with the situation they found themselves into which I, I really sympathize with. Uh, like I begrudgingly still maintain PromiseKit for $4 a month in GitHub sponsorship. While, you know, at this, when it was it peaked, there was 100,000 apps. And if a, every one of those apps just gave me a dollar a year, that would have been a salary that I could have lived off. It's not a great software engineer salary in the States, but I don't even care, right? Mm. I just felt that, there was some scaling issue that nobody was figuring out a solution for. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because companies like the big ones, they, they don't know how to put the money into that system. Like how do you, how do you compensate 10,000 projects with a sponsorship or a bounty system? You need a team of like hundred people that are actively going out and finding the project maintainers and figuring out how to give them money. You need a layer of automation for that. So I sympathize. And like I feel that what we're building is the solution to all these different pain points that has prevented open source from being something where the people who build this like fundamental and foundational infrastructure 
end up having to find a job at Google or Facebook and then begging Facebook or Google or hoping that they, they see that it's worth sponsoring that project by actually hiring the devs. And that doesn't happen very often, right? And I don't like it anyway. Don't like it. Uh, open source was founded on building what made sense for everybody. And it, that doesn't include building what makes sense for Facebook or Microsoft exclusively. The corporations are immoral entities, right? They, they don't do what's best for everybody. They do what's best for themselves. So, yeah, I feel that what we're building is really that solution. And God, it's close now. We're, we're going to have the incentivized testnet out this year. Uh, we're really starting to ramp up the marketing, uh, appealing to the right people, uh, open source devs of all kinds. This isn't a crypto project. This is a project for everybody. I really hope that once it's running, it will make people enough token that they feel that they can quit like Facebook and Google and all these other companies, right? I want it to be a competitive compensation system, but it's impossible to know how it's going to go and how long that will take. In the meantime, there's all sorts of other excellent things that will come along with the system. Like every project becomes a DAO on chain effectively, which means that we're introducing like proper governance systems like um powered by smart contracts and allowing the community and the maintainers the people who are interested in the project to vote on how that project runs and how it is governed and uh the general utility of it and then also there's a lot of fun things that i hope that we'll get in the first few versions like uh slashing uh, for security exploits like open source. No one wants a security exploit in their open source, right? But the incentive is not there, really, to make sure there isn't any security issues. And, you know, we we can enforce that by penalizing you if your project has a major security exploit decided by the DAO, the TDAO, which, um, you know, there'll be a big DAO where everyone who holds token can participate in figuring out uh, how the the T protocol needs to evolve with time. Like I raised VC in order to bootstrap this thing, but once it's live, with hands off, this mm. is a gift to the community. Like the T T Incorporated isn't going to be taking any like money out of this system, right? We we don't have a fee attached to the how the token like moves. Um, the, the only way we can make money with this system is by building open source ourselves. Mm. So that, that's how we're, we're going to be like pioneers for what it can be effectively. Yeah. You can dog food it too. directly, like just yeah. build your own stuff. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's, I think that's always what makes the most successful open source projects is when you can truly create really good stuff on top of it and, uh, do it yourself. The creators can build really cool stuff themselves. Like, um, yeah. uh super base is one that i always bang on about uh on mm -hmm. on here um i absolutely love what they do so i i have um i have a project um on on the side which is a job platform to connect uh uk graduates with startups because mm. uh, i mean obviously you're a brit in the us so you know how this is i think american graduate culture is they're much more open 
to like working at a high growth organization. Whereas over here in the UK, it's like you will work at a grad scheme, you'll work at a big four accountancy firm, you know? Um, so the idea is connecting people uh, with that, but I've built all of the infrastructure using Superbase and it's unbelievable. And it's all just completely open source and they, they dog food everything themselves. And that's how I know that yeah. they're trustworthy. Yeah, totally. I love Superbase as well. Like very polished in every way. And uh, yeah, a good example of commercial open source, which is this thing which evolved to try and figure out how we can build open source and mm. also uh, compensate the people who are building it. And I, I like commercial open source. Yeah. Mostly. I still feel that the incentives aren't quite aligned with what open source is about, but I think it's more aligned than most of the others. But of course, the massive barrier to entry for that is that you have to get VC funding. Mm. And what I've learned, having received VC funding, is that a lot of that is all about who you know and not really about anything <laughs> else. So, yeah, like, I want open source to exist without the need for having a friend who knows a friend who knows, like, someone at YC or uh, A16Z or whatever. And um, it's there's some nice things that can be built on top of the protocol eventually that include, like, the idea of crowdsourced funding like mm. upfront funding and uh based on like the token rewards that that project's going to get in the future um very interesting possibilities uh because i have some DeFi people on staff right and so they've been thinking through everything they can mm. try and figure out like ways that the system can be built up um which you know one of the most interesting things i think about starting this company has been learning all about what they call tokenomics and uh how it's all like game theory underneath it you're like building incentive systems and you're trying to make it so that the incentive to use the protocol how you want it to be used is higher than the incentive to try and exploit it and scam it or like manipulate how it works to like siphon off token for yourself and uh yeah it's fascinating also it makes you realize why they're is so many scams in crypto and like yeah. the, the, why the reputation it has is, you know, quite deserved in many ways. What do you think could be done to help clear up that reputation? Because, you know, I, I'm someone who does like crypto and its possibilities, but, you know, sometimes to be honest, like I'm completely anecdotal, uh, one of my, I play rugby and one of my teammates can be a lift to training and we were chatting just casually in the car. And I mentioned something about, um, about writing smart contracts. And he said, what smart contract? And I said, oh, it's like this Ethereum thing. And he goes, oh, you're not into that, are you? Like that. And <laughs> it was like immediately, like yeah. it, his face clouded over. Um, and I just, you know, how do we fix that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I totally get it. Um, the, the story I usually tell is like, it's email, right? Like email was uh, just like so many scams for a while, right? And it still is, right? Yeah. Like, check your junk folder out. Uh, but we all trust email now. And so how did that trust get earned? Well, legitimacy. Legitimate projects and companies using email for legitimate purposes. So I'm hopeful that this next cycle in the crypto space is going to, like, produce way more companies like mine, where we're trying to do something that actually people see it. And they go, okay, yeah, I can see how that is a good use of crypto that it couldn't really be done without any uh, without crypto and how um, if it succeeds, it will add some legitimacy to what can be done with the tech because it is just tech. Um, 
also yeah there's gonna have to be some more regulation for sure like it's money right that's the problem mm. like email didn't need regulation because it wasn't a direct way to like um extract people's wealth uh like you can with crypto um it, you know people tried but it was all through like social engineering in the spam mm. that you were receiving the phishing attempts or crypto if you find like a way into a protocol that wasn't expected you can take everybody's money and that's not a good scenario um so yeah there needs to be some work there but you know we we're like checking our smart contracts like 1700 times getting them audited all over the place and that if if more projects had done that there would have been less of the exploits but then the rug pulls yeah you need regulation to uh stop people doing that so yeah uh, we'll, we'll see what happens this next cycle yeah definitely a lot of exciting stuff on the uh on the horizon but um yeah i think that's that's basically uh we've come up to about an hour now without me even realizing um yeah. but that thanks so much for uh for coming on the show it's really interesting to hear your insights and if people want to find out more about t either to support the project potentially if they're an open source person get involved um how, how can they find out yeah t.xyz is our domain very pleased with it because you know you don't get three letter domains that easily <laughs> even though it's an XYZ one, you know, we were looking into buying T.org at one point, but like the guy who owns it just wants too much. Yeah. I hate giving these domains scummers money, you know, Uh, but maybe we will at some point. And uh, yeah, with TXYZ on Twitter, it's probably the best way to like follow along with updates. So yeah, check it out. You've been in America a while then, you're saying Z. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's 11 years, 11 years this year. So yeah, I say Z and I talk about, don't talk about petrol. (laughs) there's a a bunch of other stuff like my personal trainer at my gym is brit for some reason uh just coincidence and we were talking the other day about phrases we never hear anymore and he was what was the one he said um oh damn something about rough can't remember there's loads of them and you forget them and when i go back to like christmas i start hearing them all again i'm like oh yeah yeah, that, that that and the fact you drive twenty miles down the road anywhere in the country, and we all start sounding different. <laughs> <laughs> that too. But yeah, and um, if people want to um, keep in touch with you directly, is there is there a good way? Uh, sure, I'm Max at t.xyz or mxcl on Twitter. Cool, nice. Well, um, thanks as well to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Coder Career. We are in your Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everything else feeds every other Monday. Have a great week.